Thank you, Joyce. Good morning, everyone. It is great to be together, isn't it? Uh, and opening God's Word. Please uh, don't shut your Bibles. Keep the Bibles open. Uh, that would be a good thing to do. And if you uh, have an outline there with you and you want to follow through on the back, uh, please do that. I think it's probably already mentioned that there's question time afterwards. Is that right? So people know what to do. Good. Excellent. <clears throat> well, uh, when Claire Smith, the author of the book, God's Good Design, was asked how feminism had impacted the way we think about men and women and relationships such as marriage, she said the most obvious word that comes to mind is confusion. She went on to say that people are having significant identity issues. We, uh, we see that, don't we? Uh, people are confused about what it means to be a man or a woman. And they're confused about how to make marriage work. In uh, most of the recent public discourse on gender, it feels very much like we have, as a society, adopted a confrontation mentality. Male and female are being played off against one another. Uh, often people are scared to contribute to the conversation for fear that their words will be misconstrued or that they will inadvertently say something wrong and scorn will rain down on them. I remember after a time that I'd been bullied at school and my parents found out, and my mum insisted on taking me up to the principal uh, with the evidence in her hand. Uh, and all I can remember going through my mind was, do I really have to do this? Uh, you know, I don't want to do this, can't, can't we just let it be? I didn't want to stir up any more trouble for myself. And can I say that sometimes people in my position today uh, feel a little the same way. Uh, we're dealing with a topic that impacts people's emotions. Today, the Apostle Peter takes us to the sharp end of what it means to live as a Christian, particularly among the tricky waters of marriage. And he tells us how we are to live lives shaped by God's grace towards us in this very important but also most sensitive of areas. And so while on one hand I might be tempted to think, oh, do I really have to do this? On the other hand, I think, well, yes, I do. Um, we need to talk about these issues. God has something very important to say to us about these matters. But our society has stopped listening to God. Uh, and what's the result of shutting our ears to God? Well, it's what we see all around us today. It's confusion. And that leads to brokenness and pain and sadness. And so perhaps you're a little like me, frustrated and concerned by the confusion and the, dam the damage that it's doing. Uh, perhaps it's even the confusion in your own marriage or that of someone close to you that you care deeply for. We need marriages to work, don't we? It's not just couples who need marriages to work. Our society needs marriages to work. Children need marriages to work. And they need to, uh, so young people who aren't yet married need to see marriages that work. And they need to understand before they get married what they ought to be looking for in a marriage partner and what kind of marriage partner they need to be. And older people want the marriages of their adult children to work because that creates family cohesion and a greater likelihood that they'll have a relationship with their grandchildren. And so we need good marriages, don't we? Our whole society has a vested interest in that. And well, God has something to say about the way we conduct our marriages as Christians. But more than that, in this passage, Peter has a particular concern for wives with unbelieving husbands. 
And he shows that God offers us hope where things feel hopeless. He offers us comfort where we are hurting. He offers us strength where we feel powerless. And no matter what our circumstances, he wants to use us to honour and to glorify him. And so before we go any further, why don't we pray and ask him to help us do that today. Heavenly Father, we just want to pause as we come before you in your word this morning. And we want to acknowledge, Lord God, the confusion in our world and possibly even the confusion in our own minds. We want to acknowledge that sometimes we find these things hard to talk about well. But we ask, Lord God, that you would help us to hear you well this morning, that your word might be clear in our hearts and minds and that you might give us the openness of heart to respond to you genuinely with faith and obedience. Please encourage us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's uh, look then at God's word from 1 Peter chapter 3, and let's uh, just start at verses 1 and 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. The Bible teaches some outrageous things, doesn't it? Love your enemies. Don't be, uh, do good to those who persecute you. Don't be anxious about anything. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. And if we ever doubted that living distinctively Christian lives meant going against the flow of our society and culture, then this passage ought to leave us in no doubt. To ask wives to be subject or to submit is one of the most out-of-place things in our modern world. But the idea of subjection is basic to the Christian life. Now, often the problem that we have with hearing these kinds of things is the context that we bring to it. Our own husbands, uh, the marriage our parents had, feminism, or examples where the principles have been abused. Now, let's just take a moment to get the context right here, because I want to take you back for a moment to verses 11 through to 13a uh, to see the context. Uh, you could even go back before we read it. Joyce read it for us, and you could go back before, but let me just start at verse 11 of chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among... <coughs> Excuse me, a conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. And whenever you're told to do something, it's a fair call, isn't it, to want to know who is asking and what they're like. Uh, when God speaks to us, we need to understand that God is not our enemy. He is our greatest lover. Peter calls them, that that is the church, beloved. That is who we are to God. Uh, Kurt uh, pointed that out for us last week. Beloved is a term of great warmth and, devotion, and depth of devotion. See, God is not asking anything of us that he hasn't already done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, remember that the one who is asking you to be subject is the one who has already subjected himself to the cross to die our death and to pay for our sins. He's the one who has given us an eternal 
imperishable and glorious inheritance. The first area of context is to understand what God is like. The God who is calling on you to be subject to your own husband. The second is that when our marriages operate God's way, they will not only bring honour and glory to God, but they will be a powerful testimony to a watching world that will help lead some to be saved. The call on Christian wives to be subject to their own husbands, not any husband, or need, nor indeed any man, but the, the call here is in line with the subjection that's appropriate for the Christian in other areas as well. For example, what we saw last week. And Peter recognises that a woman who has this attitude can have a powerful impact on her husband. If her husband is an unbeliever, he may be won over, not with words, but by her respectful and pure conduct. Now, without words doesn't imply that husbands can believe a gospel that they've never heard. Uh, this is a gospel they've obviously heard. It's that they do not obey the word that they have heard, the word that they know. And so there's a missionary aspect to the way that we conduct our lives as Christians. Uh, remember back in chapter 2, verse 12? Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, verse 12 is the headline to this whole section, I think. Uh, submitting ourselves to the appropriate authorities, always conducting ourselves honourably, will be a powerful witness to non-believers. See, here the unbelieving husband may be won over, not by his wife's convincing words, but when they see her respectful and pure conduct. The word respectful there in verse 2 of chapter 3 is the same word translated as fear over in chapter 1, verse 17, where it says, if you're a Christian, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. In other words, a Christian wife is to submit to her husband out of fear or out of reverence for God. It may not be the way that modern society thinks. It may be ridiculed for us to think that way. But we do not live out of reverence to the world and its ways. We live out of reverence for God and his ways. We may be laughed at, ridiculed, even opposed. But remember, we're strangers in this world, exiles, not living in the futile ways of this world that will perish, but honouring God and taking our lead from Jesus. So what does it mean to be subject to your own husband? Well, the idea here is to place yourself under someone else voluntarily. It's an attitude that's willing to accept and follow your own husband's authority and leadership. See, when you, when you submit, it's not making a statement of superiority, that one is necessarily greater than the other. It, it's actually an issue of relationship. The equality of husband and wife is emphasised actually down in verse 7. But here it's, it's how we relate as God's people. Out of reverence for Christ, for the sake of unity, and to bring glory to God. It needs to be said that it is God who calls on wives to be subject to their own husbands. For the wife, her subjection is to be exercised voluntarily in reverence to God. 
It is never a husband's task to demand his wife's subjection. Subjection to a good and godly husband is a good thing. It's his responsibility to work for your good. And it's the making of a beautiful and a worthwhile marriage. It doesn't, however, place conditions on your submission so that you can pick and choose if and when you want to submit. Now, I don't, however, want to suggest that being subject has no limitations. Uh, Clearly, you are to be subject to Christ first. Wives are not to submit in ways that are contrary to God's commands. And sadly, it needs to be said that no wife has to submit to physical and mental abuse. I mean, there are laws to protect you from detestable actions like that, and you shouldn't hesitate to get the protection that you need. Come and see me if you have questions about that kind of thing. But notice that there's special encouragement for those women who are married to non-believers. Your behaviour can have a remarkable effect on your husband. But your influence won't be external, it will be who you are internally. Let's just pick it up there at verse 3 of chapter 7. He goes on to say, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold, jewellery or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Uh, you may remember Martin Luther King's great freedom speech in America. Uh, in one line of his speech, he said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the colour of their skin, but by the content of their character. And today we perhaps could modify it to say something like, I have a dream that my little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the brand of their clothing, by the style of their hair, nor by the cost of their accessories, but by the character of their hearts. Now, Peter isn't saying Christians shouldn't adorn themselves uh, that externally at all. I mean, otherwise, if you weren't to adorn yourselves externally at all, you'd all be sitting in front of me naked right now, and that would be rather disturbing. Um, and he's also not advocating asceticism, that is the kind of self-denial in relation to our appearance that says that you can only shop at Vinnie's, stop wearing all jewellery, use a rubber band to tie the hair out of your eyes until your husband has a chance to cut it for you at home. Not saying that. Peter's not saying that we shouldn't care about our appearance. He's not saying that you can't have a nice dress or get your hair done or wear some jewellery or whatever it is. But he is saying, quite emphatically, don't let the externals be the substance of your beauty and don't kid yourself either. Otherwise, all you are is a hollow shell, only as good as next season's fashions. You have as much character as a mannequin and as much hope of glorifying God as, and seeing your husband one for Christ as I am of winning next year's city to surf. You know how, often, how likely that is. The true beauty of a Christian woman or man will be seen as uh, they cultivate the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. 
Now, if you spend more time in front of a mirror than you do in front of a Bible, then it will give you an idea of what kind of track you're heading down. If you spend more money on adorning yourself than you do on gospel ministry, then again, it may be an indicator of the beauty that you are seeking. So who you are on the inside, the character of your heart is just so much more important than what you try to make yourself on the outside. And you don't need to be an introvert to cultivate a gentle and quiet spirit. A gentle wife is a wife who doesn't insist on her rights and is not pushy or manipulative. A quiet wife is peaceful, not rebellious. And you can be loud and vivacious on the outside and still cultivate a gentle and quiet spirit that is very precious in God's sight. It's simply the fruit of the spirit in the heart of the Christian, and it's very beautiful. See, Peter points his readers to Sarah, Abraham's wife uh, from the Old Testament, as a model of godly beauty in submitting herself to her husband. See, Abraham isn't an example of an unbelieving husband, but God's call upon Abraham's life meant that Sarah needed to submit to Abraham's leadership of their family and at times to do so with great cost and even fear of the circumstances and outcomes that she faced. Abraham and Sarah aren't the picture of a perfect couple. Their mistakes are recorded for us, but they feared God. And Sarah, in submission, respected her husband and his God-given role. And so let me just say to the singles amongst us, if you're pursuing a relationship with the opposite sex, and if it's based on the externals, then you've got a problem right from the start. You're not pursuing the kind of relationship that is going to glorify God. And men, if you're looking for a woman, uh, if, if what you're looking for in a woman is all based on the external appearance, then you're doing your sisters in Christ a great disservice. And can I also say that if you're contemplating a relationship with a non-Christian, somehow hoping that you'll win him or her over, then you're disobeying God and making a terrible mistake. You can't use this passage to somehow conclude that it's okay to go and find a non-Christian spouse to win to Christ. But let me move on more specifically to the husbands and to the men. Because God wants Christian men to be honourable husbands. Uh, verse 7 of chapter 3. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honour to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And Peter begins addressing husbands as he does the wives. Likewise, husbands... Now, if wives are likewise to be subject, as we see from verses 13 in chapter 2 and verse 18, then what does it mean in the case of husbands? Again, I think we need to head back firstly to verse 12 of chapter 2. Likewise, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable. Husbands are to honour their wives, verse 7. And perhaps we could include chapter 2, verse 17. Likewise, Honour everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. Now certainly Christian husbands, like wives, men, like women, are to be subject to the Lord. Or verse 16, likewise, 
use your freedom from sin and judgment to live as servants of God, in this case, with your wives. Now, it may even include the example of Jesus, this likewise, in verses 21 to 25, who bore our sin so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Likewise, we should live like Jesus. See, God wants husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way. Hear, hear, I hear our wives say. Well, I hear my wife say. Anyway, um, what does it mean to live in an understanding way with our wives? Well, I think Peter spells it out for us, and it involves two key things. First, understand and honour the woman as the weaker vessel. Uh, Secondly, understand that they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now, that ought to shape your understanding attitude and behaviour towards your wife. Is it sexist to describe a woman as the weaker vessel? Well, in one respect, it is sexist. If by using that word, you mean that it makes a distinction between men and women. Peter certainly is differentiating between men and women here. But if you mean by sexist that it's saying that women are inferior to men, well then no, it's not sexist at all nor is it trying to be. It's not in any way a statement about a person's worth. Describing a woman as a weaker vessel is not a qualitative comment on her worth. That's completely obvious when it goes on to say that we are equally heirs together of the grace of life. The claim that wives are heirs with us of the grace of life was absolutely astounding in the ancient world. That's because women then were never considered heirs of anything or anyone. And so this is a most remarkable statement and one that we generally miss. Christianity has done remarkable things for the status and welfare of women. In God's eyes, men and women are absolutely equal in worth, but different in the way that he has made us. If we weren't, well, we couldn't have children. The most obvious way to to understand Peter's words is the physical difference between men and women. Some may want to blur those distinctions, but God doesn't want us to do that. We blur those distinctions to the detriment of women. We need to be understanding of how God has made women. Possibly it goes even further than merely physical. Men, we have plenty of weaknesses that our wives, and often women more generally, have to put up with. No wonder they're called to be gentle. And perhaps that reveals something of our weakness. But I'm in danger of highlighting my strengths, particularly in comparison to my wife, to somehow build myself up at her expense. Uh, One of the guys from our church here reminded me just a few weeks ago of something that I must have said um, uh, uh, some years ago along these lines. He said that he reminded me that I had highlighted that I need less sleep than my wife. Uh, That is true. Um, But he also reminded me that I had confessed that sometimes I had been known to point that out to my wife, pride, wicked man that I am. Now, the danger, of course, is that instead of being understanding as I am called to be, I use my strength to puff up my pride and put down my wife. Don't do that, God says. Man, if that's the kind of thing you do, you need to repent. Why? Because your wife is an heir with you of the grace of life. Did Jesus die for you? He died for her too. Have your sins been forgiven? 
So have hers. Have you been given an inheritance that will never perish? So has she. Does God love you? He loves her just as much. You are a foolish and wicked man if you treat your wife in any way other than with great understanding, tenderness and love. You are to honour her. You fail to honour her when you crush her by your moodiness and your sulking. You fail to honour her when you frighten her by your verbal abuse. You fail to honour her when you betray her by your infidelity. You fail to honour her when you anger her by your laziness, when you demean her by the insensitive way you try to have sex, by wearying her by leaving her to do yours and her share of the work. You dishonour her when you humiliate her by your childishness, when you remind her of her failure in the face of your perfectionism, when you disappoint her by your lack of leadership in prayer and Bible reading, when you make her feel insecure by failing to care for her, when you are demanding and overbearing, when you hand her sole care of your kids, their physical and their spiritual instruction. See, Peter links our failure to honour our wives as heirs with us, of the, that with the failure of our prayers. Notice what he says there in verse 7. It seems that God will not listen to the prayers of a man who fails to honour his wife. Maybe it's because it calls into question the genuineness of our Christian faith. There's a great danger here for men, isn't there? We need to take stock of our marriages and we need to do all that we can and must to honour our wives. Well, we shouldn't just read this passage as if they stand alone outside of their context. Hopefully we haven't been doing that. But Christian marriages, remember, are a part of God's call for all Christians to live such good lives among the Gentiles so that when they speak of you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, back in verse 12 of chapter 2. See, if our lives are to be missional lives, then our marriages are to be missional marriages. They're to lead people to glorify God. They're to witness to the goodness and grace of God in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ who died to save us. So here's God's mission strategy for our life in the home, especially for those of us who are married to non-believers. Although I do want to put in a quick disclaimer if I can, because even when wives of unbelieving husbands do live incredibly godly lives with their husbands, they still may not become Christians. It's not a guarantee that Peter is giving us here. And it doesn't suggest that you haven't been godly enough. If that's you, you need to hear that. But our fear of God frees us to serve others even in the face of those things that may be frightening. Our good works will have a missional impact. That is, they will be a witness to others of the goodness and grace of God. And non-believing husbands may be won over without words by the respectful and pure conduct of their wives. So we don't just need to invite people to evangelistic events. Our lives are the evangelistic events. And not just in the home, but everywhere we go. Our lives don't replace speaking the gospel. But nevertheless, your life is the front line of mission, whether in the home or wherever you go. 
And so let, let's make it our aim to live grace-filled marriages and grace-filled lives to the glory of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, these are important and weighty matters that impact upon all of us, married or single. And so, Father, we pray that we would be men and women who listen carefully to your word, who know the depth and extent of your love for us and recognise that what you call us to do is always for our good. And so, please, Lord God, help us to be able to humble ourselves before your mighty hand to trust you and to live for you in all of these ways. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.